May it be your will, Hashem, my God, that a mishap not come about through me. And may I not stumble in the matter of Torah and cause my colleagues to rejoice over me. And may I not say regarding something which is to me that it is to whore, and not regard something which is to whore that it is to me. And may my colleagues not stumble in the matter of Torah and I rejoice over them. For Hashem grants wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil my eyes that I may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. We want Mashiach now. Well, my voice is pretty bad this week, so Shlomo will be doing the majority of the recording. So, that's our Hashem. I will be returning at the closing bracha. And good evening, everyone. And this is Rumination 6. Did the patriarchs... Oh, wait a minute. This is the wrong one. Excuse me. It should be Rumination 8. Let's bring it up here, folks. Okay, rumination eight. Is there a great commission, something that all disciples of Messiah are sent to do? On a personal note, as well as being in Christianity, I've heard this many times, and it is kind of, Christianity's mantra, so to speak. Oh, go out and knock on doors, pass out tracts, get people to accept Jesus into your heart, you know, that kind of thing. You know, go out and evangelize, you know, stir people to repentance, you know. All those are themes that are replete in, ev in evangelistic uh, prose. Um, but if we're going to be honest with ourselves about this one, and we should, what does it really mean? What is the master getting at in the verse that is so often quoted within Christianity when it says, go and make disciples of all nations teaching them everything that I have commanded you and immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some parts of this verse honestly get skipped over, glossed over. It's rather unfortunate 
But his first command in this verse, right off the bat, is simply go. Go and do what? Make Talmudim, disciples. He does not say to make disciples for or converts for your local church that you personally attend, whatever congregation it might be that you may be a part of. Because the pastor who gets behind the pulpit, for those of you who are in the Christian church, is not the, the head of the body. Messiah is. Ultimately, we answer to him. We answer to him even now for our actions and what we say. So you need to think carefully about this verse. Um, because traditionally, Matthew 28, 18 through 20 has been called the Great Commission. Evangelical Christianity has been highly successful at promoting this as the ultimate mission for Disciples of Messiah. It's ironic that some of the same people who are most outspoken against works-based acceptance by the Almighty are the ones that promote this passage as the mission statement for all believers. After all, there are no I believes or creeds in this passage which is another point to take in. There's, not, there's none of that here. What are we really talking about? We're talking about bringing people into the household of faith, into the house of Israel, within the context of first century Judaism. And even today, that context applies even today though some would argue against it. Oh, it's not the same as it was back then. Really. I mean, that's a circular argument. It just, it really doesn't hold any weight. Because the words that were spoken 3,500 years ago are immutable, unchangeable, they're the basis. The Torah is the basis for our life, our way of life, which cannot be stressed. And then I find myself going back to Rashi's comment on Genesis 1 and 1. It's the beginning of his way. Israel being the first of his crop. So if you're listening to this, and these words may be difficult for you to digest because you might be viewing scripture through a certain particular lens, then it is my honest and earnest prayer that you would read and search the scriptures for yourself so that you, on a personal level, as well as being part of a community, would realize the importance of the centrality of the words of the Torah. For there are no words 
like the words of the Almighty. It is his self-revelation. It is who he is. If we are to... So when we want to make disciples, who are we bringing them to? This is the, uh, yeah, I can't stress this enough. Who are, when we go out to make Talmudim, who are we bringing them to? I've even had this discussion when I was in the church and I've, I've come to the, and I stated my conclusions with them, whether they agree with them or not. We don't make disciples for your local ministry. We don't. We make disciples who follow the master just as we follow the master because the master lived by the Torah. If we are to be true Talmudim, then that has to be the basis of why we go out and make disciples. For we do a great disservice to those whom we're trying to reach or those who come to us that Hashem brings and puts in our path that we can share Torah with them and how the master is the living embodiment of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, yeah, in all honesty, um, for me, I've wondered about this for many years, you know. Wondered, you know, when I used to go door to door and I used to pass out tracks to people, you know, canvassing the streets where I lived, you know, trying to get them to come to the local church. And then I wondered, you know, when I first started sharing my faith with my mother, who unfortunately at the time was very resistant because of past experience of her own with the so-called church. There are some people who are actively resistant to it, maybe for a reason, because they might understand something. You know, we shouldn't be so quick to put those people down because we were once ignorant. We were once in the world without, without Hashem, without hope. Um, I mean, it's only recently when I told my own mother that I was, and this is a bit of a personal testimony, which I'll share, um, that I just started sharing Torah with her, you know, after I, my wife and I actually, my wife and I actually wrote a letter about it. And we sent it out to all our friends to let them know of our spiritual journey and what the work, the work that Hashem is doing in us and the work that he has called us to do is to let others know. So I actually started sharing Torah with my mother and letting her know the reason for it. And she actually listened to me. She didn't offer any rebuttal and I for a second there I was kind of taken back I didn't know what to make of it you know but then I thought about it I said you know what this is what Hashem's doing this is his work 
I'm doing what he wants me to do. Staying in line with his will and just simply sharing what my experiences are of going out and sharing, you know, making Talmudim for our master. Um, yeah, the last time my wife and I went home, it was back in April. Uh, yeah, the month of my birthday, and we were, I had gone to my mother's to visit before we had to go back here to Minnesota, and um, my brother, who had been backslidden, so to speak, for many years, whom I was praying for, um, just started rededicating his life, albeit in the church, you know, and all honesty, I think in his zeal has overtaken his common sense. <laughs> um, because I started sharing Torah with him, and the only thing that comes out of his mouth is the dogma of the church. You know, and I realized then I just backed off and said, okay, that's all right. You know, the time will come when he will be at the place where he'll understand what I've said to him. It's just that he needs to internalize it. See, that's the other thing I've noticed in the church. There's this like conveyor belt mentality, like a factory, like a car factory. Oh, we got to get the numbers out. You know, we got to build this many computers, for example, because I used to work for a computer company. So we, if, especially when we get a large order, right, and got 100 computers to get out today, and I had to QC them all, you know, and I had to just fly through them, you know, and the church unfortunately has this mentality. Fill the pews, you know. We want numbers. And I thought to myself, where is the discipleship? Where is the one-on-one -on -one teaching? Guiding these people. Letting them know what this life is really about. It's analogous to a, a professional sports player, like a baseball or football. If it were easy, anyone could do it but it isn't, and neither is this life. I mean, you look no further than the Jewish people who have endured so much um, persecution down through the millennia at the hands of those who say they walk with the master, who name the name of Messiah, and while in the same breath curse those who have faithfully taught their children and their children's children and so forth, every single generation that has come since then. So it's uh, history is replete with those who call themselves a disciple and yet do they behave like one? Do they truly emulate the master? Can the master be seen in such individuals? So I, another point again, and you know, you who listen to this, are you 
a disciple of your pastor or the master? Are you reading scripture through his eyes or are you reading it for yourself so that Hashem can speak directly to you? Because after all, it is his word. That's what should be guiding your behavior, all of us for that matter, as a whole, as the body of Messiah. Um, that's one point I think I can't quite stress enough. Um, well, let's take a look at that verse. So let's try and look at this verse and uh, contextually so we can better understand it. So it says, and Yeshua came and said to them, that is his 12 disciples, Talmudim in Hebrew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, so he simply says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. There's a method that the ancient rabbis used in the Talmud, it's called Gezer Shabbat. It simply means that you find similar wording in another verse or another verse that uses the same words even, that could bring us greater context, greater understanding of something, especially this. And there is such a verse that has similar wording as this verse does. Uh, we can find it in Matthew 16, where Yeshua says to Peter, who came to the realization that you are the Mashiach, Ben Elohim. And Yeshua says that flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And we know the Father to be the Torah. And we find other places in the Gospels as well. But I think more importantly, we need to go back to the Torah to discover the meaning of authority. A good place to start would be uh, Exodus 3. I'll just go there. Where Moshe is on Sinai and he's talking with Hashem. And we find beginning in verse 2 of Exodus 3. The angel of Adonai appeared to him in a fire blazing from the middle of a bush. He looked and saw that although the bush was flaming with fire, yet the bush was not being burned up. And Moshe said, I'm going over to see this amazing sight and find out why the bush is, isn't being burned up. Now I'm reading from the complete Jewish Bible. When Adonai saw that he had gone over to see, God called to him from the middle of the bush, 
Moshe, Moshe. He answered, here I am. He said, don't come any closer. Take your sandals off your feet because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father, he continued, the God of Abraham, the God of Yitzhak, and the God of Yaakov. Moshe covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Adonai said, I have seen how my people are being oppressed in Egypt and heard their cry for release from their slave masters because I know their pain. I have come down to rescue them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that country to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaan, Hiti, Imori, Pirzi, Hivi, and Yabusi. Yes, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen how terribly, terribly the Egyptians oppressed them. Therefore, now come, and I will send you to Pharaoh. So there we go. We have there's a set, there's authority that's been handed over to Moshe to go to Pharaoh so that you can lead my people, the descendants of Israel, out of Egypt. But then, unfortunately, we have Moshe said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? He replied, I will surely be with you. Your sign that I have sent you will be that when you have led the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And what's interesting at the end of the quote here in the rumination is, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the, to the end of the age. So Moshe is the person who is sent, who can, who speaks for God. Another place that's similar to this is in uh, Parashat Kaye Sarah when Abraham sends. Eliezer to get a wife for uh, Yitzhak. He's going in Abraham's name. He essentially is Abraham. And we know that the sages say in the Talmud that Moshe, that Moshe is like Elohim because Hashem sent him with the authority to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, that they may serve me. It's kind of like us going to our Christian brothers and sisters or even a pastor and say, hey, you know what? Let them go. Free them from this theological box, this theological prison that you have all these people in. Because they're not really serving Hashem. They're serving you. They're serving your self-interest. Your own perceptions. Which is something else that we need to guard against. Because if it's, that's the case, then it's completely subjective. And that is the definition of self-righteousness. 
So we can continue on in this verse. And then now he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That means everybody in the whole world. No one is exempt from this. Nobody. And yet no one's exempt from hearing it either and making a decision. So it's like a two-way street. <laughs> and then we have immersing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So where else do we see immersion? We can go back to Matthew 3. Down there at verse 13. And it reads, Then Yeshua came from the Galil to the Yarden to be immersed by Yochanan. But Yochanan tried to stop him. You are coming to me? I thought to be immersed by you. However, Yeshua answered him, let it be this way now, because we should do everything righteousness requires. Do everything that righteousness requires. So it's a righteous thing to make disciples and to immerse them. But what are we immersing them into? Certainly not the local ministry. Because that would be subjective as well. To get a better idea of this, we need to go to Acts chapter 2. And this one is quoted. This is like the mantra in Pentecostalism. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this verse quoted. And an entire salvation hit theology hinges on this one verse in Pentecostal circles. Literally. I mean... But it's a, that's the thing. If you're just going to hinge your entire theology on a single verse, then you're taking that verse out of context. We need the setting. We need the place. We need the reason why Kepha is delivering this message in the first place. Is it in fulfillment of a command? Or, in, or I should, better yet, in obedience to the command of the master. Because he did say, go therefore.
I always, uh, one rule that should always be thought of, uh, context is king, ecclesiology is the queen. So this is important. I love how David Stern and the CJB, his sensitivity to Jewish thought is present in this, in the CJB. So this is Acts 2.1. The festival of Shavuot arrived. In Pentecost, they use, it's Pentecost. Uh, the King James reads, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come. That word is fine, because penta meaning 50 and cost meaning weeks in Greek. This is a fine translation. It seems to be faithful to the Hebrew. Because Shavuot means weeks. So, and the believers all gather together in one place. Now, a good student of the Torah will immediately recognize this wording. I just read it in Exodus. What, what did Hashem tell Moshe to do? First, he tells him to go to Pharaoh, let my people go, that they may serve me upon this mountain. And when Moshe led the people out of Mitzrayim or Egypt to Sinai, it took them 50 days to get there. This is why in Acts 2 verse 1, you see, and the festival of Shavuot arrived. It's a reminder. It's a remez for the verse in Exodus 19, when Israel arrived at Sinai. The whole of the congregation of Israel, the whole assembly. And in Hebrew, that word is kahal, which means assembly. Yep, and Israel encamped. Yep, Exodus 19, one of my favorite chapters. It's, that's, that chapter is more important, I think, than most of us can probably realize. And so like the verse says in Exodus 19, and all Israel encamped. And they were, what was it, uh, one? Unfortunately, I can't quite read it. Maybe I can go there in Exodus. <laughs> oh, Rashi on Exodus? I can grab it. Let me grab it. <laughs> See what necessary, I'll get out, Rashi. <laughs> on 19.1. Okay, Rashi on 19.2. And they journeyed from uh, Rephidim. Where it says... Uh, 
They journeyed from Rephidim and arrived at the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness, and Israel encamped there opposite the mountain. And Rashi asks an interesting question here. Why did the Torah need to go back and specify from where they had come? Did it not already write that they were encamped at Rephidim? It is clear that they journeyed from there. But this fact is repeated here to liken the Israelites' journey from Rephidim to their coming to the wilderness of Sinai. Um, and to continue Rashi's comment on this verse in Exodus 19.2, um, journey from Rephidim to their coming to the wilderness of Sinai, Sinai by juxtaposing the two events, just as their coming to the wilderness of Sinai was in a state of repentance. As one man with one mind. So too, their journey from Rephidim was in a state of repentance. And what do we find in Acts chapter 2? Peter's message of repentance. On Shavuot. Very, very same thing. So this is another great parallel. Which means there's nothing new under the sun. What has been will be again. So... Unfortunately, this chapter, and as far as the way the church looks at it, is something new. And it's not. We also need to consider the setting for this chapter. Where is Peter and the Talmudim? Where are they? Because you also got 3,000 people there. So where are they going to stand? Where are they going to sit and listen to Peter? We get the little more context of the location in the very next chapter of Acts, where it says, and Peter and John went up to the temple at the hour to pray. Which could mean none other than the morning prayers. So, with that geographical location given in Acts 3, we have the, we have the location where Peter delivered this message. They were near the temple. They were in the environs of the temple. You know, and, it, and then in verse two, it says, suddenly there came a sound from the sky, like a roar of a violent wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Well, what do we see in Exodus 19? Hashem descended on the mount and thunder and fire and lightning, the thick black cloud. Same thing. 
See, again, it's just nothing new, you know? It's not new. Then they saw what looked like tongues of fire, each separated and came to rest on each of them. They were all filled with the Ruach HaKodesh and began to talk in different languages. As the Spirit enabled them to speak, what are those different languages? The languages of the 70 nations. Because we read uh, the words of the sages and also the commentary in the Humash that all 70 nations were offered the Torah. And they all came up with an excuse why they didn't want it. Because they found it to be inconvenient. Incompatible, they say, to their lifestyle. Sinful as it, as it is, was and is. We find the church doing the same thing. Oh, we don't need to do those Jewish things. Unfortunately, they're not Jewish things. They're the very commandments of Hashem. Now, the church, especially Pentecostals, they like to use this as uh, speaking in tongues. But there's just simply no scriptural evidence for that. You had people who were from the other nations. How could they understand gibberish? Some, because that's really what it is that they're talking about in, in the church, those who hold to this doctrine, as erroneous as it is. Um, no, it was the languages of the other nations. And see, we get a list. A little later here, uh, see, verse 5, now there were staying in Jerusalem, religious Jews. Okay, this is important for context. What kind of people were there? And what, who's the first people mentioned here? Jews. From every nation under heaven, when they heard this sound, a crowd gathered. They were confused because each one heard the believers speaking in his own language. Totally amazed, they asked, how is this possible? Aren't all these people who are speaking from the Galil? How is it that we hear them speaking in our native languages? We are Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Yehuda, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome. Jews by birth and proselytes, Jews from Crete and from Arabia. How is it that we hear them speaking our own languages about the great things God has done? I'm sure, you know, Luke wrote Acts, so I'm sure he only gave a partial list. But this suffices to make the point. They were speaking in their language. 
That's the amazing part. And this and the sages say this in the Talmud that all the nations were offered the Torah, obviously in their language that Hashem spoke to them. So they could clearly understand. So you are without excuse, old man. You know, the, to me, I find this really amazing. You know, it, it's it's very clear. There's no funny tongues here. There's not, not that which cannot be understood. Amazed and confused, they all went on asking each other, oh, what can this mean? But others made fun of them and said they have too much wine. Then Kepha stood up with the eleven and raised his voice to address them. You Judeans and all of you staying here in Jerusalem, let me tell you what this means. Listen carefully to me. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this was what was spoken about through the prophet Yol. Adonai says, and no, Peter is quoting from the Tanakh. Only the Tanakh existed in the first century. They did not have the text of the apostolic writings. They weren't codified yet. They weren't written down yet. All they had was the Tanakh, whether it was the Septuagint or the Hebrew Tanakh. It's kind of a mute point, but they speak Hebrew, so I would imagine they had a Hebrew Tanakh available to them. So Adonai says, in the last days, I will pour out from my spirit upon everyone. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my slaves, both men and women, I will pour out from my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will perform miracles in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and thick smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon blood before the great and fearful day of Adonai comes. And then whoever calls on the name of Adonai will be saved. And he's quoting Joel 3, 1 through 5. Men of Israel, listen to this. Yeshua from Nazareth was a man demonstrated to you to have been from God by the powerful works, miracles, and signs that God performed through him in your presence. You yourselves know this. Oh, and you all was uh, the reading from the prophets for... Uh, this week or was it oh my goodness okay so he made a sharing with me on his phone that on September 11th Vayilek which is the second to the last Parsha on Shabbat Shuba and I saw Joel on that list that's amazing. I mean, that's no coincidence. Especially on that day of 9-11. On Shabbat Shuvah. Man, that's like... 
how more poignant can you get? So to continue reading from Acts 2, this man was arrested in accordance with God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, and through the agency of persons not bound by the Torah, you nailed him up, and honest they can kill them. Nice. Okay, so Ahmed's pointing out to me that Kepha was sharing half Torah by Elak, which Joel is part of that reading. So that's really awesome. Yeah, to stir the people to repentance. So he knew the half Torah reading for that week. Okay, to continue reading from Acts 2, and nice point, Kepha reading from the half Torah reading for that week's Parsha, that is awesome. And it's always read on uh, Shabbat Shuva, the Shabbat of return, which occurs just before Yom Kippur. Because that's what Shabbat Shuva is calling the people to return before the Day of Atonement. So, but God has raised him up, verse 24 of Acts 2, uh, but God raised him up from, raised him up and freed him from the suffering of death. It was impossible that death could keep its hold on him. For David says about him, and I saw Adonai always before me, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. For this reason, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. And now my body too will live on in, cert in the certain hope that you will not abandon me to Sheol or let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will fill me with joy by your presence. Brothers, I know I can say to you, frankly, that the patriarch David died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, since he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn an oath to him that the one, that one of his descendants would sit on his throne, he was speaking in advance about the resurrection of the Messiah, that it was he who was not abandoned in Sheol and whose flesh did not see decay. God raised up this Yeshua, and we are all witnesses of it. Moreover, he has been exalted to the right hand of God. So there's another statement that's important to remember. The right hand of God, authority. So that gives us more context when Yeshua says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
has received from the Father what he promised, namely the Ruach HaKodesh, and has poured out this gift, which you are both seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but, but he says, Adonai said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And that is Psalm 110, verse 1. And again, from the Tanakh. Therefore, let the whole house of Israel, there it is, whole house. All of Israel was encamped at Sinai to receive the Torah. So, know beyond doubt that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Yeshua, whom you executed on a stake. On hearing this, they were stung in their hearts. And they said to Kepha and the other emissaries, brothers, what should we do? Kepha answered and said to them, turn from sin, return to God. And each of you be immersed on the authority. There it is, authority of Yeshua, the Messiah. And just as a quick reminder again, this was on Shabbat Shuvah before Yom Kippur. They had to be. <laughs> For all intents and purposes, this had Yom Kippur had to be right around the corner when Kepha was delivering this. So this really does bring more context. Uh, culturally speaking, within the confines of Judaism. Yeah, because look at what he says here. Turn from sin. Return to God. And each of you be immersed on the authority of Yeshua the Messiah into forgiveness. That's, this has Yom Kippur all over it, now that I really think about it. I mean, <laughs> Man, forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh for the promises for you, for your children, and for those far away, as many as Adonai our God may call. He pressed his case with many other arguments and kept pleading with them, save yourselves from this perverse generation. So those who accepted what he said were immersed and there were added to the group that day about 3,000 people. And I'll pause there and ask, why 3,000? Why not some other number? Because our answer lies again in Exodus, but this time in Parashah Kitisa, in the sin of the golden calf. When Israel descended down into the idolatry of the calf, and Moshe came down with the tablets and saw for himself the idolatrous behavior of Israel, and he smashed the Lukot, 3,000 died that day. So, apparently we have the tikkun for the 3,000 here in Acts chapter 2. The repair. 
what was wrong is now made right. See, these kinds of things are camouflaged over by your English Bible, by theologians, and by any pastor, unfortunately, who has got, goes, gone through, got his education from a seminary. Because ultimately, this stuff goes all the way back to the third century, you know, the Catholic Church. And but I'm thankful that Hashem led me to get this particular Bible because David Stern has done such a wonderful job showing such sensitivity and apologetics to uh, Jewish thought and hermeneutics. Because we have a much better understanding of Peter's message in Acts 2 and the cultural context, context of his words. So much more important to realize. So in verse 42, they continued faithfully in the teachings of the emissaries and in fellowship, in breaking bread, and in the prayers. Now, this verse can be uh, paralleled with uh, a verse in Parashat Mishpatim towards the end of that Parsha. Nishma, uh, was it Ma'ase? We will hear and do all that Hashem has said. To continue, that, that could easily be seen as we will continue. All that Hashem has spoken. Because what we have in the Shema, and you shall teach these things to your children, diligently teach them to your children, um, Deuteronomy 11. Now, they continued faithfully in the teachings of the emissaries. They weren't teaching anything different. This is, this is Judaism right here. This is, you know, as pointed out, you know, when um, Kepha was reading the half Torah to them from Joel, that it's not their doctrine, but the Torah. Yeah, uh, the teaching of the emissaries, the, which means sent ones, in fellowship, in breaking bread, and in the prayers, everyone was filled with awe, and many miracles and signs took place through the emissaries. All those trusting in Yeshua stayed together and had everything in common. In fact, they sold their they sold their property and possessions and distributed the proceeds to all who were in need, continuing faithfully and with the singleness of purpose to meet in the temple courts daily and breaking bread in their in their several homes they shared their food and joy and simplicity in heart praising god and having the respect of all the people and day after day the lord kept adding to them those who were being saved i noticed you know it says breaking bread and there are several homes 
they were inviting guests. Shabbat, you invite someone over. That's the amazing part. <laughs> so to continue here in the rumination, um, um, so because all authority is with Messiah, he gives these commands to his disciples, go make disciples of all nations, immerse them, teach them to observe, observe the commandments. That's how we make a disciple. There's, there's no other way. Of course, the first command has been seen by some as simply go, which diminishes the actual command, make disciples of all nations. He does not say get people to accept Jesus. Or get them saved, quote-unquote. Or compel them to raise their hands. <laughs> or get them to join your congregation. He says, make disciples. Knowing first century practice of discipleship quickly dispels the notion that many even know what this is, much less practice it. I mean, there's going to be some people who will hear this and what I just read is going to be a difficult pill to swallow. I mean... Because they have this Western, we have this Western mindset, and it's Greekified, you know, uh, Neoplatonistic thought, Plato's cave analogy, are, are, where, um, yeah, that analogy says that those who are in the cave and see this light, so to speak, and they step out into the light of Greek philosophy. In other words, Plato likens the cave to, unfortunately, the Jewish people, whom he views are in darkness. This, this, this is what has infected church theology since day one. This thinking, this Platonistic thinking, that's why it's referred to as Platonistic. And the church fathers were in love with this you know, to their own demise of a proper understanding of the Tanakh. So much the same with the second command, immerse them. I asked a question earlier, what are we immersing them into? 
Now, this is not baptizing as our brothers and, and sisters, except as ritual, while denying almost all other ritual. Not new in the first century. So this is really important. Again, Acts chapter 2 will help us to better understand this. But even more than that, we need to go to Leviticus by Ikra. Again, where did Peter deliver this message? The environs of the temple. What, what do you need to do in order to bring your offerings? And I'm going to put this in the context of the Mishkan in the wilderness. You had to immerse in water, which is known in Hebrew as mikveh. which means to wash, immerse. But this is not understood as it is in Christianity. No, this is in reference to purity when bringing your, your offerings to Hashem so that you can worship him and that you can come away and be able to tell, to tell everyone about your experience so you don't uh, get taken out or consumed by Hashem. So not new in the first century, this practice can only be valid when practiced in the context and understanding of the tabernacle, temple, purity, and the change of status from Tameh to Tahor, or from unclean to clean, impure to pure. Words unknown to most pastors, even misunderstood by some so-called messianic leaders. <clears throat> and the third command to teach them to observe the commandments some teach that Messiah taught new commandments which annulled the commandments of quote-unquote, the Old Covenant, speaking of them that teach such nonsense, Yeshua says, <clears throat> Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me, he... Uh, in me does his works, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. There are many other passages in John that I could easily uh, go to. I think one I tend to go to a lot lately is John 5. About verse 
like verse five, Yochanan five thirty, is also very good as well. I can't do a thing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is right, because I don't seek my own desire, but the desire of the one who sent me. If I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is not valid, but there is someone else testifying on my behalf, and I know that the testimony he is making is valid. You have sent to Yochanan, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I collect human testimony. Rather, I say these things so that you might be saved. He was a lamp burning and shining, and for a little while you were willing to bask in his light. But I have a testimony that is greater than Yochanan's, for the things the Father has given me to do, the very things I am doing now, testify on my behalf that the Father has sent me. In addition, the Father who sent me has himself testified on my behalf, but you have never heard his voice or seen his shape. Moreover, his word does not stay in you because you don't trust the one he sent. You keep examining the Tanakh because you think that in it you have eternal life. Those very scriptures bear witness to me. But you won't come to me in order to have life. I don't collect praise from men, but I do know you people. I know that you have no love for God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, him you will accept. How can you trust? You're busy collecting praise from each other instead of seeking praise from God only. But don't think that it is I who will be your accuser before the Father. Do you know who will accuse you? Moshe, the very one you have counted on. For if you really believed Moshe, you wouldn't believe me, because it was about me that he wrote. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So more uh, poignant words there from our master. And he was speaking to the religious community in his day. who were uh, overtly religious rather than obedient to Hashem, whose hearts were divided and they simply could not understand why Yeshua said the things that he said. It apparently shows the dichotomy or the ju juxtaposition between Yeshua and a lot of the religious leaders, but I also will note and stress that it was a certain group not not the entirety of the jewish people in his generation that he's speaking to but certain individuals who are holding to their very own standard rather than that of the righteous holy standard of hashem his torah which is applicable to everyone Twisting scripture through their own theological demise, they act as if the Son and the Father gave opposing commandments. 
how foolish and, and short-sighted. It, it also shows a lack of understanding for our master's words. It, they really do a disservice to, uh, to those people who they're trying to bring into the faith, not showing them what this is uh, truly about. It shows that they're, they want disciples for themselves and not disciples for the master, which is an unfortunate dichotomy. Um, it would behoove us to pray for such individuals who have this, who are short-sighted in this, in this important area, because it's not our own words that we speak, but the words of him who sent us. Because our master said, as I was sent, so now I send you. Of the three commands of Matthew 28, 19, and 20, only in the manufactured command go has normative Christianity excelled. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. And that's Jeremiah 23, 21. And this verse is speaking about self-proclaimed prophets, and we see enough of those today. And yet the king in Jeremiah's day had him imprisoned. Yet they ran and did not speak to them. All this harkens back to uh, Deuteronomy 13 and 18. The presumption of such individuals who say that they are a prophetess or a prophet in our day is astounding. I look at such, <laughs> we're just going over that, I think last week from the handbook of Jewish thought. It has a lot to say on this subject and we, we heed those words. Um, as a matter of fact, to make that point, um, I will go there in the Humash because it needs to be read. This verse right here, we need to because we need to be reminded of what we should be on the lookout for, especially today. Because our master warned this in Matthew 24, many will come in my name saying, I am Messiah. And will deceive many. And he also said many false prophets will arise. And they lead the people astray. Without knowing the true definition. Without knowing the definition of, a, of what it is a true prophet.
Uh, even Yolkinah says in his first letter, try the spirits, for many false prophets are gone out into the world. Okay, so Devarim 13, and this is in Parashah The entire word that I command you, that shall you observe to do. You shall not add to it, and you shall not subtract from it. What do we find prophets doing today? We find them doing this very thing that Moshe warns this generation who are about to cross the Yarden not to do. Oh, God's told me something new. No, there is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes. What you going to do when Hashem comes for you? <laughs> <laughs> Too many episodes of cops there. <laughs> uh, okay. If there should stand up in your midst a prophet or a dreamer of a dream, and he will produce to you a sign or a wonder. And the sign or the wonder comes about of which he spoke to you, saying, let us follow gods of others that you did not know, and we shall worship them. Do not hearken to the words of that prophet or to that dreamer of a dream. For Hashem, your God, is testing you to know whether you love Hashem, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul. Hashem, your God, shall you follow. I would kind of parallel this with uh, Yochanan. There's a spot in there where he had many Talmudim at the time. And then the squabble with the parashim resulted in all of them leaving. And then the master turns to Kepha and said, will you also leave? And Kepha's response should be our response. Master, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Yeah, you shall follow him. Him shall you fear. His commandments shall you observe, and to his voice shall you hearken. Him shall you serve, and to him shall you cleave. And that prophet and that dreamer of a dream shall be put to death, for he has spoken perversion against Hashem your God, who takes you out of the land of Egypt and who redeems you from the house of slavery to make you stray from the path on which Hashem, your God, has commanded you to go, and you shall destroy the evil from your midst. Now you're going to hear the protest already, but that's so cool. You're actually going to stone the guy? You know, Yes. Or at the very least, in our day, you put them out of the congregation 
or speak to them at least. We can't have this kind of thing here, you know. And then endeavoring 18. And this is in Parashah Shoftim. Beginning at verse 15. A prophet from your midst, from your brethren. We're getting a little more specific here about where a prophet should come from. Your midst, your brothers, like me. We have a comparison here to make. I'm really certain that the Jewish, the handbook on Jewish thought points this out, right? We need to compare. We got to watch it. Moshe is the standard, actually. And, and on a Kabbalistic note, prophecy only comes from one place, the world of Atzilut, which is the world of emanation. It does not come from anywhere else. Like me, shall Hashem, your God, establish for you. To him shall you hearken. So if this prophet comes from your, our midst, from our brothers, and he's like Moshe, in other words, he acts and says what Moshe has already said, then so far so good. Shall Hashem, your God, establish for you, to him shall you hearken, according to all that you asked of Hashem, your God, in Horeb, on the day of the congregation. Notice that congregation is in the singular here. Saying, I can no longer hear the voice of Hashem, my God, and his great fire I can no longer see, so that I shall not die. So we have another reason why prophets... Arise. Because the people cannot stand to hear Hashem. And so Moshe continues to say, Then Hashem said to me, They have done well in what they have said. I will establish a prophet for them from among their brethren like you, and I will place my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them everything that I will command him, and it shall be that the man who will not hearken to my words that he shall speak in my name, Now, I was just reading from Yochanan 5 earlier. 
I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. The Father is the Torah. Who shall speak in my name? I will exact from him, the person who does not listen. And these verses in Yochanan 5, 45 through 47, they're, they're so important. But don't think that it is I who will be your accuser before the Father. Do you know who will accuse you? Moshe, the very one you have counted on. And look what we have here in Deuteronomy 13 and 18. Hashem says, I'll raise up a prophet from your brethren. How could the religious leaders not be aware of this? There's no excuse. Ignorance is no excuse. You know the Torah. You know what it says. That is, if you are a true disciple, if you're really following the master, and this is for those who are in the church, think carefully. You know, take this in for yourself, you know. This is one of those situations where well, you don't want to go running to your pastor for validation of a self-reinforced delusion. Because if that's the case, then this is going to fall on deaf ears, to be completely honest. For if you really believed Moshe, and he's talking to the religious leaders here, the Parashim and the Zedekim. You would believe me. Because it was about me that he wrote. How are you going to believe what I say? Now, this is also important, verse 20, Endeavoring 18. But the prophet who will willfully, who willfully shall speak a word in my name, that which I have not commanded him to speak? Or who shall speak in the name of the gods of others? That prophet shall die. So to you who say that to those self-proclaimed prophets and prophetesses out there, heed this warning. You are presuming a lot if you think that Hashem has given you something new to speak, especially if it contradicts what the Torah has already, what the Torah tells us, what Hashem has already spoken. Because if you do, then you are a liar, and the truth is not in you. And that's Yochanan's first letter. When you say in your heart, how can we know the word that Hashem has not spoken? If the prophet will speak in the name of Hashem, and that thing will not occur and not come about. That is the word that Hashem has not spoken. I repeat, 
that is the word that Hashem has not spoken. With willfulness has the prophet spoken it. You should not fear him. I mean, we find in the church that they throw a lot of guilt trips on you. Like, oh, you're not listening to the pastor. Look what he's saying. It's so awesome, you know. I can't tell you how many discussions my wife and I have had over this one many times where congregants are just so enamored by the pastor. Oh, he's so awesome, you know, like that. And it's like, they're just a man. I'm just a man. I'm just a man striving to serve Hashem. I'm, I'm a man striving to be obedient to him. Being subservient to the Torah and to the to the revealed will of Hashem, which is no mystery, by the way. Oh, I want to know God's will. Well, it's right here. Read the, four, four, the first four, five books in your Bible. There it is, in black and white. <laughs> no pun intended there. <laughs> Beloved, let us repent of our former ways. Let us not see the Great Commission as a mandate to evangelize the world by quote-unquote winning souls. Oh, he's a soul winner. No, no, that's not what it's about. Which simply fills pews with people who only attend without attending to righteous lives. That one bears repeating. Which simply fills pews, a point I made earlier. It's a numbers game. If that's all it is to you, then why bother? Why bother with your so-called outreach if that's all that matters to you? Because that is so insincere. Hashem will not be in the midst of that. I can guarantee that. He will not be pleased with it. It will fall apart. Because it's a house that's not built on the rock. And that rock is this right here. Let's build our house of faith on this. It doesn't move. It's not moved by anything. It's unshakable. Every work of man will be shaken. As Shaul says to the Corinthians. Every man's work will be tried by fire. But that which remains, you can be certain that it was rotten God. Or done according to Hashem's will. Let us attend to righteous lives. Doing. Not just in word alone, but in deed. For that speaks volumes. That is... We want to be like the master. Well, then that attending to righteous lives is the highest form of flattery, which imitation is. 
Instead, let us obey him and follow his explicit instructions. They are remarkably different than what we've been taught. Make disciples, immerse them, teach them to observe the commandments. Teach them to walk in the way of Hashem. This right here, right here. As Rashi says, it is the beginning of his way. When we obey our master in this, then we will know what being sent truly means. It's <laughs> I mean, this week's Parsha gets into it, too. I mean, it's really fantastic. Um, by Schlock. Um, the writings of his Talmudim can be seen as uh, Ketavim Shlekim, the writings of the sent ones. Um, but we see in this week's Parsha, just to touch on the Torah portion a little bit, um, so if you have an English Bible that comes from a Jewish publisher, this week's portion begins in verse 4 instead of verse 3. You'll find this ever so often in the Parsha schedule where verse numbers that mark the beginning and end of a Parsha very slightly. The name of this week's portion comes from the first line of the first verse of the Parsha, Vaishlach Yaakov Malakim, Lefanav El Esav, Akiv Artsa Seir, Sadeh Edom. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Eden, Genesis 32.3. In the phrase, and he sent, the, he, is Jacob. We want to focus upon this verb, shalak, sent. As we study this week's Torah portion, there's quite a bit of sending going on. I mean, we just went over sending, going in the rumination. So the thematic overtone should be obvious to the student of Torah. Jacob said, who does Jacob send and where? It's nice because it really gives Matthew 28, 19 and 20 some Nice fleshy context, you know. Who is sending whom and to where? Messengers. Yeah, messengers. What does Jacob, who does Jacob send and where? Our translators honestly don't know, which is why the same word, Malachim, messenger, is found two verses back in Genesis 32 1, is translated angels. Something I pointed out earlier. 
um, in the moft here for uh, Bayetze. We see that very, basically we see that very same phrase. And Yaakov sent messengers or Malachim in the Hebrew. Is yeah, Genesis 32.1 is translated angels. Did Jacob send angels or messengers to Esau? Most English Bibles translated as messengers, although a few translations in order to be consistent with the translation of this word say angels. And that's what Rashi says. It's literally angels on that verse. Either way, it is not by accident that we see this close proximity in 32 verse 1 and 32 verse 3. God sent angels to meet Jacob as he arrived back in the land, and then Jacob sent messengers to Esau. Might derive that the purpose for these sendings is similar. So in Genesis 32, 4 and 5, and he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my Lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Levon and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. So we have Jacob sent messengers with a message of peace. Jacob humbles himself in spite of the reality of the, of the blessing placed upon him. Genesis 27, 29. Uh, be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Jacob sends gifts to his older brother in spite of the fact that he has been given the blessing of the firstborn. What is the response to Jacob's peaceful gesture? Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Genesis 32, 6. Jacob may have thought to himself, I humble myself, I offer gifts, I send a gesture of peace, and instead I am repaid with the threat of war. It sounds a lot. Sounds a lot of the modern history of Israel, doesn't it? We do know that by the time Esau meets up with Jacob, the aggressive nature of those 400 men with Esau is diminished because of the persistent expressions of peace from Jacob. But at least for the time being, we are given a contrast of the response of Jacob and the response of Esau to the messengers being sent. Jacob welcomes the Malachim, messengers, angels, in Genesis 32.1. God sent a gesture of peace and welcomed Jacob back to the land. Jacob responded with awe and recognized them for who they were and what they meant. Esau welcomes Malachim, <coughs> messengers, angels, in Genesis 32.6, with an army that has started out to attack the message sender, Jacob. Of these two, who better represents the sender of angels? In Genesis 32.1. Which of these two is mirroring the Almighty's grace? It is Israel 
or as he is called here, Jacob, that best mirrors the Almighty's gracious offer of peace? <clears throat> Hashem sent. Genesis 32, 24-30 describes one of the strangest accounts in all of Torah. A man wrestles with Jacob until dawn, and Jacob describes this man as God. Hosea 12, 3-5 refers to this incident this way. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel. And there he spoke to us, that is, Hashem, God of hosts. Hashem is his memorable name. Hosea 12, 3 through 5. Who is this? Who is wrestling and blessing Jacob? A man, an angel, or God? I would simply reply, yes, some things not explained are best left unexplained. Suffice it to say, this wrestler was sent by Hashem and blesses Jacob. I remember reading the Midrash on this one. And it's nothing but uh, the Satan who constantly changes his name the, in conjunction with the Yetzirah. And this is what the sages say in the Midrash. So... It's not a it's not a simple yes on this one, but rather something we should be on the lookout for because the Yetzirah does change up its game to trip us up. You know, because what are we dealing with with in our English Bibles? We're dealing with camouflage. You know. You know, the Yetzirah is playing tricks on with the translators and they're giving into it. Okay, we'll take it at face value. We'll do it that way, you know. And, you know, we. this is why searching the scriptures is so important. We've got to search them for ourselves. we got to know what, what it means. Um, but this is why we study as a group, why we pair up with someone, Kabuta. This is the Hebrew word for pair. Um, because it can't just be us. You know, we have, you know, to, we need to be in a group setting where everyone shares their, their opinion of what they think the verse is saying. But so long as we stick to the, uh, the basis of the surface meaning of the text, then we go from there, which is what the sages in the Talmud did. They never strayed from the Peshat, just as Rashi never did. Which is why Rashi should always be the first of the super commentators that you study. Um, so the answer is a little more complicated than, than a simple yes on that one. Um, then Yeshua sends... There are wonderful messianic pictures in this week's portion. One that may have been missed by some is the issue of 
being sent. Let's consider this for a moment. Jacob or Israel, as he is named in this week's Parsha, gives us the picture of the man of grace in that he represents Messiah's gracious sending of his messengers. To the world, he seems to say, I send you my messengers. They convey my message of peace. They speak my message of how I came in humility. They bring my gifts. What will your response be? We are like the Malachim of peace who were sent to Esau. We carry a message of peace. Like Jacob wrestled with the angel and did not relent until he received a blessing, so too Israel wrestles even today with Messiah. Israel's detractors have incorrectly assumed that this wrestling is rejection. To believe such a thing ignores the teachings of Scripture and the final redemption. One day as the dawn approaches, Israel will declare, I will not let you go until you bless me. And then, as the day dawns, Israel's eyes will be opened and declare that they have seen the face of God. They will recognize Yeshua as their Messiah. And then what's the other thing about this portion is the half Torah, Ovidiah. 1, 1 through 21, which is only one chapter. And it talks about saviors. Um, which... <laughs> I think I will leave that for your own personal reading. Um, but I do recommend if you have an iPhone or a Mac that you can go into the Mac app store and you can purchase um, the app uh, Moadim, which has all these commentaries. I strongly recommend it. You can find it in the Mac app store. You can find it in, in iOS and the app store on your iPhone as well. This is a very good app. I've been using it now for six years and I find it an invaluable tool. And as another aspect of my personal testimony it's helped me in my Torah understanding. What helped me get a really good start and a firm grasp on many of the principles that the Torah presents us with on living, refining one's character, you know, um, but again, as in all things, um, have an open mind, be willing to let go of preconceptions, because if you don't, your preconceptions will challenge you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like a every new insight I discover or connection, I should say, I think that's probably the best word I think, or parallel as Imad has pointed out, um, it's just like a, a bomb going off or a lightning bolt, you know? It's it's that flash of hokmah that happens. Now speaking Kabbalistically, and I'm speaking from actual experience. 
that flash of hope of divine insight. That's where it comes from. That's the sham letting you know, hey, this is connected to this, you know. This is another aspect of who I am. And so much fulfillment can be derived from that, from proper Torah study, when we don't depend upon our own perceptions, which can be skewed. And so many people are in that in that boat, especially with what we were talking about during this podcast about what it is to be a, a true disciple and what it means to actually go out there, what it means to be sent. Hashem's the one who's sending us. As Yeshua was sent, so are we. But what is the message that we are declaring? That's yeah, the message of Teshuvah. It's a message of repentance. But ultimately, repentance involves returning. And returning from, turning from what to what? Returning from missing the mark, which is the definition of sin, to hitting the mark, which is the definition of Torah. which has another meaning, which means arrow, that a shot at a target, and hitting it, bullseye. You can get the sense that Hashem is smiling because he's pleased that we are hitting the mark that, oh, he's getting it, and going to help him out, you know. You know, give him strength. Bezrat Hashem, you know, it's a phrase we use quite often. You know, Kazak, Kazak, Benik, Hezek, be strong, be strong, and be strengthened to encourage one another at the conclusion of each book of the Torah. Um, but it is my prayer that this, you find this message of blessing an encouragement to live like a sent one. As Hashem sends us, so we send you. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> um, yeah, excuse me there. <laughs> um, well, yes. I pray this is a blessing to you that you're encouraged and that you will search the scriptures for yourself and that you will discover the true nature of the faith of living, of walking with the master, attaching yourself to him and to follow his commands and to know what to look for. If, if you're a pastor or you're, congregation leader is not delivering a message that is consistent with the Torah, then search for yourself. But one thing I probably would not do, and most congregants will always be tempted to do it, is to confront them. You know, I found this out. You know, what, what, what do you, you know, what do you say about this? And the problem that you would face is that your pastor's going to give you an answer. He may or may not be able to. And this should leave a question in your mind. It should be a red flag. 
so again, search the scriptures for yourself. Know what they say. Our master has said it. They testify of him. Okay. Yeah. Mode Ani Lefaneka Adonai Elohai. I thank you, O Hashem, my God, that you have established my portion with those who dwell in the study hall, and you have not established my portion with idlers. For I arise early, and they arise early. I arise early for words of Torah, and they arise early for idle words. I toil, and they toil. I toil and receive reward, and they toil and do not receive reward. I run, and they run. I run to the life of the world to come. And they run to the pit of destruction, as it is written, and you, O God, you will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days. But as for me, I will trust in you. Amen. We want Mashiach now. A big thank you to Shlomo for carrying the rumination tonight. May Hagadosh Baruch bless him and grant him much chizuk.